I see this guy and I do like this double take and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a guy with an assault rifle. And I, I looked at him and he looked at me and he kind of had this look like, what the heck is that guy doing here? The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 424. Woodward Avenue in Detroit, Michigan, made history in 1909 when it became the first paved road in the entire United States. I bet today's guest would kill for a paved road every once in a while. As a former teacher, I'm a huge proponent of education. And if you're listening to this podcast, which you are, you know that I'm also all about having freedom and flexibility. And that's why I wanted to tell you about Oregon State University eCampus, because it's an innovative and nationally ranked provider of online education, and it's truly a win-win. They have over 70 online programs to choose from, everything from psychology to Spanish, Hey, that'll come in handy on your travels, everyone. And what's so incredible about the ability to learn online and why I love it so much is that you don't have to stop traveling in order to pursue a degree. And Oregon State eCampus students, they are living proof of this. Take Ashley Stevens, for example. She hiked to Mount Everest Base Camp. Yes, that Mount Everest in Nepal last year while earning her business degree. And that is a lot cooler than how I spent my college years. So to see why Oregon State eCampus was ranked number five in the nation by U.S. News and World Report and check out all their programs, head to ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. And you can check out all the amazing programs that they have. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who fell in love with biking in the city of Detroit, who enjoys being and peeing outdoors, and who is on a two-year bike trip from Alaska to the southern tip, the very southern tip of Argentina, Chris Haig from theplacesip.com. Chris, thanks for joining me. A huge welcome. Travis. Thanks for having me, and that might be the best intro I've ever had, somebody who enjoys being and peeing outdoors. There you go. That's you. That, that, <laughs> tie it up with a bow. Chris Haig enjoys being and peeing outdoors. Uh, and you've got Very nice. quite a story here, quite a story, and, and you're on quite a journey, and it's coming, well, not your whole journey is coming to an end, but this portion of your journey coming to an end kind of soon. How did let, let's talk about that? This idea uh, that you're biking a two year bike trip from Alaska to the southern tip of Argentina. Where, like, what spurred this on? Why are you on this trek? You're, you're doing it with your wife. Whose idea was it? Let, let's just dive into this story a little bit. So, it was my idea, and I guess I've always, I'm, I'm. Th- 
I'm 36 now. I had to think about that. But I've always been thinking about taking a long chunk of my life to to travel probably since I was 18 years old. And um, I guess I never really knew what, what that would look like. I just knew that I wanted to do it. And then maybe maybe six or seven years ago, um, somebody mentioned bike touring to me and I'd never heard of it before, but it kind of made sense right away because I, I used to do a lot of backpacking. And so, um, so yeah, somebody just kind of mentioned the idea of, of doing, you know, uh, overnight trips on the bike and just, you know, riding somewhere, camping, doing that for a couple of days and riding back. And that made a ton of sense to me and it seemed interesting. And, um, my, my wife, Sophie and I, we ended up taking a trip, um, across the state of Michigan. And I just, I remember on like the, the very second day I, I had a, uh, I had like a, an aha moment in my head. I, it was like, as soon as we got out of the city and everything, and we started going through the, the countryside in Michigan and, and I just sort of thought, this is, this is it. This is the way that I'm going to travel around the world. Uh, it's going to be on a bike. It was just a great feeling, you know, when you kind of get that sense of freedom. And so what then brought you to this idea? Because that's one thing, right? All right. Hey, I'm going to go around Michigan. You know, yeah, some people might say, wow, that, that's a crazy trip. But for most people, they at least understand it, right? <laughs> like, all right, he's going around Michigan. He's going for a couple of days, he's going for a week, what have you. But then you decide, hey, I'm going to go from Alaska, like I'm going from the top of North America to the to the very bottom tip of South America. Walk us through the thoughts behind that and kind of the planning behind it as well, because this is now like it's one thing to say you're going to do it. And probably a lot of us have said we're going to do it. In fact, I've said I wanted to do something like that and I haven't undertaken it yet. So for you, what really got the gears in motion there? For, for lack of a better term or for a pun there? What got the gears going? <laughs> well, as far as like how to come to the decision that you're going to do it, I guess for me, it's just sort of like go big or go home. Maybe it sort of evolved a little bit that at first I started after that, I was always thinking, well, what's my next bike trip going to be? You know, I'd love to ride across the United States or I'd love to ride through Alaska or... Um, you know, or, or whatever it was, maybe, maybe go and ride a little bit in Europe. And I, I guess it, it just kind of always sat on the back burner for maybe five or six years. But like I said, I get, since I was 18, I knew that I wanted to take a long time at some point in my life to travel. And so with the logistics, I've just kind of always been squirreling away money so that whenever I figured out what it was I was going to do, that I was ready to do it. And um, uh, we had moved from Detroit to Utah in 2015. And uh, we really liked Utah from the sense of it was incredibly beautiful, um, great outdoors activities. But at some point after three years, we kind of started to talk about how it just really wasn't, wasn't where we would want to be long-term and didn't want to wake up one day and see and say, you know, how did we end up, end up being here for five years or seven years or whatever it was. And so it's, um, 2000, 2017, we basically said next, 
next May, we're going to, we're going to leave and we don't know what that, where we're going to go, but it's, it's time to move on. And then, um, and then at some point I, I just sort of threw out to Soph that just kind of one of those ideas that pops into your head one day, like, Hey, why don't, why don't, uh, if we don't find the perfect work situation, how about we just ride our bikes from Alaska to Argentina for two years? Um, and you know, she kind of let, let the, the gears turn for a minute there. And, um, she just said, sure. <laughs> um, so we started looking into the whole logistics of it. And for us, I guess the, the main thing was just figuring out what we were going to do with all of our stuff, uh, particularly our pets. We found somebody to watch the dog and we found somebody to watch the cat, but basically we were, we were at a transition already in our lives and we'd both been saving money for the better part of our adult lives to do something like this. So I think that mentally we were ready for it. So it wasn't really like this big decision. It was, it was sort of like seizing on the opportunity that the stars had aligned that we were, we were going to be moving. We knew we'd be getting rid of a lot of our stuff. We had people that were willing to watch our pets at that point. It just kind of came down to, um, by, uh, buy a, buy a boat ticket to Alaska and, um, and, and get going. You, you mentioned you've been saving up and you can give me exact numbers or, or ballpark figures, whatever you prefer, but what did you think? And you could tell me if it was accurate now that you're, you're coming to the end of the journey a little bit. What did you think you would need in order to do this trip? How much were you budgeting? I was actually doing our taxes today. So fun, so I can fun stuff. That. I hope this podcast is more <laughs> thrilling than that one than that. The things that you don't see on people's Instagram accounts um, when they're when they're having their world travels is when they're holed up in the uh, hotel or a coffee shop for the day uh, doing spreadsheets. But um, but actually, so we we average about a thousand dollars a month each. So two thousand dollars a month um, is what we spend. And and that is actually, that is like exactly what we budgeted. And, and it's not even that we're, we're really trying hard to stay within our budget at all. I think we probably spend a bit more than most people that do this sort of thing. Um, we treat ourselves to hotels and dinners and stuff like that more often. And, and we've done a lot of things in terms of, um, uh, we took a trip to the, took a trip to the Galapagos the bulk of which, uh, I guess I have to plug a thank you to, uh, to Soph's parents for, for funding that. But then we also took boat trips through the, uh, through the Caribbean and basically anything, anything that we've wanted to do along the way, um, we do it and, and we're kind of falling right in where we thought we would as far as money goes. That is, it's fascinating how that kind of works its way out, right? Um, to, to what you actually budget. Now, what about time? How long did you think it would take? And then what, like, when is, is there a planned end date? And is that falling in line with what you thought? Yeah. So basically for time, um, I, I, I kind of did like a, a rudimentary route early on and figured that it was going to be somewhere close to 20,000 miles. Um, and I said, you know, if we can average 50 miles a day, that's 400 days of riding. So, you know, if we can ride 
400 days out of two years, which is um, not much more than riding every other day, then, you know, we'd be able to do the whole thing in two years. Um, And so we gave ourselves two years, but kind of loosely and just said, you know, if it takes a little longer, that's okay. And if we finish early, that's okay. We'll just go at the pace that we want to go. And at this point, we've been at it for about 19 months. And we've probably got, if we wanted to go really fast, we could finish in two months, but we'll probably, we'll probably be done in somewhere more like three months. Okay. So you're actually, you're a bit ahead of schedule from what you kind of envisioned. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is even though we, we did do some pretty like detailed planning on things, one of the things that we, that we didn't account for was that summer and winter are opposite in the Southern hemisphere. So leaving, leaving in July in Alaska in two years and arriving in July in Argentina, um, that would be the middle of their winter. Um, so at the, at the bottom tip of Argentina, if we arrived in July, we would have some pretty horrific weather. Um, so we decided to kind of speed it up a little bit so that, um, so that we didn't, didn't get, stuck in the snowstorms down there in the mountains yeah was it tougher than you thought like in the beginning you know everyone's you're probably super excited about this and you're like this is going to be the best and and all that but there probably was some sort of reality check that came about at some point do you have like a a pinpoint on when that might have been or like the first reality check of like oh we're doing this like we're on this trip and all of a sudden you know I don't know what it was, but we've got X amount of days and X amount of miles ahead of us. Oh my gosh, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? Honestly, not not really. I think I think because even though even though we'd never done anything as big as this before, but I, I guess the way I kind of break things down in my head is that, you know, it's it's a series of five day cycling trips, basically. And if you can, if you can plan a single five day cycling trip where you carry all of your food and everything that you need, and really the only thing you need to find as you go is water because to carry five days of water is a lot. But if, if you can plan a five day cycling trip, um, and you're planning on 400 days of riding, then it's just 80 five day cycling trips (laughs) is, is the way that I look at it. And I had done a 20 day cycling trip before. So I knew that I could do a five day trip. Um, so I think that once we got going, I mean, you know, maybe here and there, there were things with maybe, you know, weather or when you start to realize how hard it can be with riding through the wind sometimes. But I guess once again, I've you know, I'd ridden through bad weather before I'd, I'd ridden against the headwind for two or three days straight before. So, um, I think that honestly, for me, mentally, I was, um, never really had a major, um, never had like a major curveball, honestly. What about for, for your wife, for Sophie, had she done as much biking as you had done? No, she had done one five day trip. And I think for her, she has a problem with her lower back. 
um, that kind of flares up occasionally. And there, there were a couple of times early on when she started to have some back problems and, and she did kind of start to think like, you know, I don't know if, um, if this doesn't go away, I'm not going to be able to do this for two years. And maybe a couple other times too, I think for her, because, um, you know, because I am a stronger rider where she'd start to get maybe a little bit frustrated because she might be more tired at the end of the day or have, have trouble keeping up or, you know, something like that. But, um, but you know, when, I guess when, when things like that happen, you know, we would just take some of the weight from her bike and, and stick it on mine and, and kind of remind ourselves that if we're, if we're sore, if we're hurting, we don't have to ride every day. We've got plenty of time to do it. So I think that we've, I think we've done a good job of taking a, a measured approach, um, to things. And actually, you know what? Uh, there was a time <laughs> for me as well. Now that I think about <laughs> I, it. There's all, there's always not. a time there's gotta yeah, be right. Yeah. yeah. So actually, um, I had my moment in Mexico. It was because I got hit and I think it, I think I actually, they never figured it out, but I think maybe I got Giardia in the United States because I got really sick just before we entered Mexico. And then every, every three or four weeks, I would have like a horrible, horrible bout of like five to 10 days of cold sweats, horrible stomach cramping, um, nausea and diarrhea and horrible fatigue. Um, and it would like clockwork, it would come every three weeks and it would last up to 10 days with like days four, five and six being absolutely horrible and the rest of them being pretty uncomfortable. And, and I do remember, um, like, like sitting with my head in the toilet, uh, at some point in Mexico, like thinking like, if this doesn't stop, I don't know that I want to do this for the next year and a half. But thankfully, it went away. But nobody ever really figured out what it was because I think in in Mexico, they always assume with the foreigners that it's some kind of foodborne illness. But because it had started in the United States first and the way that it was recurring, it didn't really seem like that to me. Um, but with the language barrier, sometimes it's tough to really explain what's going on. Yeah, that I man, especially too, if if you're trying to, you know, plan out a schedule or a route and you're and you're laid up for 10 days right in the middle of it um yeah. every 30 day cycle i mean even <laughs> though you're saying we only have to bike about half the days of our trip yeah you know you're taking a huge chunk there which means the rest of the time you know you're having to bike probably more than you would want or, or more days in a row what what did that look like like have you fallen into a bit of a routine or, or did you have multiple routines throughout this trip of because you mentioned it was like a, it was like doing a five day bike trip. Did it fall into that? Were you like, all right, we like to do five days on the bike, five days off, or a couple days off, five days on the bike, or was it a little more, you know, go with your gut? How are we feeling? Let's take a couple days here because we're pretty sore. Mm. Yeah, it it totally changes with where you are. So, um, 
like we just went through northern Chile, which was sort of similar to going through the deserts of Nevada, although much, much harsher environment. But um, but in northern Chile and in Nevada, it was basically just um, it was basically just a suffer fest of like riding for three weeks with a day off here and there on the rare chance that we came through a town. But the towns were usually just like, you know, these like literally one horse town um, with, uh, you know, a tiny little shop and, you know, a single hotel and maybe a population of like 200 people. So it wasn't really somewhere that you're like looking to spend a lot of time. Um, so we would, we would stop in them to rest, but for the most part, it, um, we would have to ride 70 mile days um, because water was always really far apart because we were riding through um, in Chile, it was the Atacama desert, which is one of the driest deserts on the planet. Um, and then, and then in Northern, Northern Nevada as well, we'd have to have these, these 70 mile days where we're just moving nonstop and really, really pushing ourselves hard um, because it's, it basically comes down to a, a safety issue. Um, you know, having to carry, water for only a day and a half versus having to carry water for two or three days. Um, and so other, other times we're constantly going through larger towns with, you know, more sites to see lakes to swim in and camp by for a day or two, or, um, you know, just things that we want to stop for. And so, and, you know, sometimes it feels like, Sometimes it feels like we ride two days and then we take three days off and we do that over and over again. Sometimes we ride for um, 10, 15 days straight without taking a break um, because, you know, we're we're fighting against the weather. And, you know, if yeah, there's if nowhere to uh, take a break in, really, like, why would you break if you're in the middle of nowhere type thing as well? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, is, um, I would say what the, the hardest factor for us physically is the wind. Um, it can really make or break your day. So if you know that, if you know that the wind is going to be good today, um, but you've, you've ridden eight days in a row averaging 60 miles and you've been going uphill and you're just, you're tired and you're beat, but today you're going to have a tailwind and tomorrow you're going to have a headwind. Take the tailwind and ride today, even though you're tired. Um, because the tailwind will completely wreck your life sometimes. Um, I recently, Sophie and I went separate for a little while. She was, she was pretty tired of, um, of riding in the, the deserts in Chile. So she took a bus to a town in Argentina and took a break. And then I, I rode through the rest of Chile to meet her. And my last day I was all psyched to ride. Um, it would have been about 105 miles. Um, and it was basically all downhill. Um, so I was, I woke up thinking I'm going to ride a hundred miles in like four hours. Um, and just, you know, just blast this out. I didn't check the weather though that day. And, it, at some point early in the day, the weather shifted and I was riding downhill on a pretty steep, like s steep mountain. I, I think I was supposed to drop something like 12,000 feet that day. <laughs> um, like I was, I was on almost 
it would probably be like the tallest mountain in the lower 48 states in the U.S. if it if if it was in the U.S. Um, and I dropped from there almost to sea level in a day. But on that steep of a ride, I was going into a 40 mile an hour headwind, and I was in my climbing gear riding downhill and struggling to ride at like six miles an hour. If there was no wind, I would have been going 50 miles an hour. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you just were like, oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, so that if that, you know, that's a punch in the face um, when you get a day like that. Sometimes you have to look at the conditions and say, it's going to be rainy or it's going to be, I'm going to have a headwind you take a break or you keep going because of that. We also had a situation recently where um, we were approaching a mountain uh, for like two two days, I think. We could see this mountain pass that we were going to have to ride through. It was at like 16,000 feet. And um, every day I, I could see that there would be storms on the two peaks of the pass. And then in the afternoon, the storms would drop into the pass on the road. So we, we made a point to get up super early and try to get through this pass before the afternoon storms came and we didn't get there in time. And, um, so at like 5,000 meters or 16,000 feet, um, we got hit with like hail and sleet and rain and snow. Um, I think it, it dropped like an inch of snow in like 20 minutes on us once the, once the storms came and, um, and we kind of had a, a chat about, do we, do we, you know, find a place to get shelter, put the tent up? I think we actually saw an abandoned truck and thought about just sitting in there and trying to wait out the storm and eventually decided that, that if it kept snowing the way that it was, we could get stuck up there for a couple of days and not be able to ride down. So we kept, we just kept moving. And then actually we got super lucky. It was the first car we'd seen in like two days drove past us just around the uh, peak and uh, we, we thumbed it and threw the, threw the bikes in the back of the truck um, and got out of there um, in the middle of the storm. Would you have said that was maybe one of your closest calls as far as like ending up in some sort of danger or were there other issues, were there other times too that you were, you know, you got caught in some pretty hairy situations? That, that was probably weather wise. Um, that was probably the, the worst thing that we were in. And yeah, I think, you know, fortunately, even if that truck hadn't come, I think, you know, we, we would have gotten out of there. All right. It would have been a pretty, um, it would have been a pretty miserable day. Um, but I, I think we would have been okay. <laughs> Easy wow. to say in hindsight. Sure. Sure. Of course. Yeah. You're like, yeah, we would have been okay. <laughs> Um, what other yeah. than, so, so you mentioned like the desert in, um, in Nevada and then obviously in Northern Chile, what were some of the other places that were difficult to ride through? Like those were difficult because they're remote and the weather can be crazy and stuff like that. Were there other places that you found that were for whatever reason, just, just difficult? Yeah. Um, Costa Rica, we, we went through during the rainy season. Um, actually their, uh, their tourism board would be quick to correct me and tell me that it's not the rainy season. It's the green season. Um, but, uh, it rained every, every day 
anywhere from two to three times for like one to two hours at a time. And, and it got to the, we would, we would sometimes try to pull over and and wait the rain out, but it kind of gets to the point where it's just raining so much that you don't have a choice to ride through it. Um, and that is, that kind of gets miserable after a little while. Um, after, uh, after a week of just always being wet because it's so humid even if it stops raining at night you stop you know we only have like i've got one pair of riding clothes that i wear it every day i wash it every day um and so at the end of the day i you know i wring my shirt out i hang it from my bike and you know my underwear and my riding shorts too and every morning i get up and i put wet underwear on and then i start riding and then within two hours it's raining again and so the, the tent is always wet. Your clothes are always wet. Um, sleeping bag is usually damp. And it, at some point I remember riding and like, like thinking that I smelled like mold or something like that. And then I realized it was probably my shirt or me um, that was moldy. Weather-wise, that like, it chews away at you yeah, <laughs> in I mean, those kinds of situations. And knowing that it won't end. Knowing that, hey, I can push through today. Yeah. But tomorrow will be the same, and the next day will be the same. Right. Like that's probably, I mean, that's meant more mentally draining than actually being in the moment, right? Because we can push through most things. All right, I'll get through this, and then I'll come out on the other side. Right. But you're just saying, I don't know when this it's, is going to be the other side. I'm just going to keep yeah. doing it, or or you know, or you know that it's going to be a month of being in the rainy season. Um, and we had we had something similar in. Uh, in Peru, as we were getting up into the Andes, we started to get hit by the rainy season there. And I think the the first month that we were in Peru, it rained every single day. Um, and and same thing, you know, it was sometimes a couple times a day. And we we were at that point, we were also between three and thousand, three and four thousand meters, so like thirteen to fifteen thousand feet above sea level. And um, and so then it's raining and it's cold <laughs> um and you're you're waking up with ice on your bike and your bottles are frozen and, and everything and you're wet so and then it, and then actually too at that point it's actually getting dangerous like in um you know in costa rica it was hot the whole time but as we're hitting that rain in peru you got to be really careful about if you decide to ride in it because it could be 20 degrees fahrenheit that night and so if you go to bed wet when it's that cold um, you know, you're, you're kind of tempting fate a little bit with your fingers and toes. What did you guys do for that? What type of things, I, I don't know if it's called tips or tricks, but what is advice for people who are in a situation like that, where it's, it's cold and it's wet and you know, you're in a tent and, and you, you guys said you did spend some time in, in hotels and stuff like that, but you were spending, it, would it be most of your days camping? Would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah, most of the time we were in a tent, and it, especially in the, it it really it changes through the countries like U.S., Canada, Mexico, Peru, Chile, Argentina. You can camp almost every night if you want to, and, and actually through Central America and into um, it, it starts to get better in Colombia, but especially Central America, it's really densely populated. Um, and it's really hard to like find a place to hide for the night with your tent. Um, so if you're camping, actually a lot of times you're like 
camping behind a gas station or something like that, or asking somebody if you can just camp on their property. But, um, uh, but it's really hard. Like I, that was something I, I kind of took for granted. I think in the States before this trip was that we've just got so much open space where you can just pull off the road and, you know, find a couple of trees to hide behind and nobody's going to see you for the night, but it's not, it's not the case in every country. But as far as I guess the safety of that, we learned within our first two weeks when we were in Alaska, we got hit um, in Denali national park with um, uh, it was, I think maybe 50 degrees and rained for six hours. And we decided to ride through it. And we figured out that day that if it's cold and rainy and we're camping, we just have to stop and, um, and not ride that day. That's, that's where you just kind of look at it and realize that the, the elements, um, are going to beat you. Um, because I think we, by the, by the end of that day, I was, I was shivering so much, you know, I could barely, I could barely pull my brakes, um, and you kind of get to the point where mentally you're not, you stop making good decisions um, when you get that cold because it, I, it drains, you know, it like physically drains your body because of how much, how hard your body's working to heat itself. And, um, and then that kind of drains the, the energy that, you know, that you get in your brain too. And, um, and then, yeah, I feel like we make, we make bad decisions sometimes when, when we get that tired. And so, um, so we do everything that we can, if we know that it's going to be, I'd say 45 degrees or lower and raining, we just, we do our best to just not ride. Um, you know, if we're, if we're riding through a town or, or kind of out in the country, we just, we find the closest business or a house, we just knock on their door and, um, tell them, you know, it's, it's cold, it's wet. We need a place to get shelter. And we've never had anybody turn us down in one of those situations. Wow. Yeah. You bring up a good point about the mental side of this. And, and, you know, we talked about how do you plan something or or plan for something mentally that's so long. And you had a great advice of like, all right, just look at it in chunks and we can do chunks. What about just the like, yeah, you have your, your partner there and, and Sophie's there and you guys can talk and this and that, but you're with one other person going, you know, who maybe at some point doesn't want to talk to you, right? Because they're, you know, they're upset or you're upset or, you know, you're just in a situation where you're like, I'd rather not, you know, even speak to someone. How do you, like, what have you found that that has done for you in terms of, I, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say you know, feeling enlightened or something like that. But that's a lot of days on the road where you just have your thoughts and you're just going and it's and it's a lot quieter and a lot simpler than the life that many of us lead when we're back home and we're being constantly bombarded by stuff. So what have you found like that either works or what have you what has happened mentally as you've been on this journey for you? Well, I listened to the extra pack of peanuts podcast. <laughs> that, so, so that got you through the first, those 400 episodes got you through the first like 20 days. Uh, yeah. Nice. I, I don't, I don't know how much I want to divulge my thoughts sometimes when I'm, when I'm sitting there, uh, in the middle of the desert, um, <laughs> after, uh, after three days of riding alone, 
Well, in, in one part, as, as far as it just being the two of us um, and spending all that time together, I think that we made a we, we made an agreement early on that at any point, if, if we need space, that it has to be okay for us to take a week or two and go our separate ways and then uh, converge somewhere else down the road. Uh, and we've, we've done that a couple of times. And I, I think that's been pretty important to, uh, both of our sanity along the way, because it is, it is hard in that regard. I mean, you're, um, you know, you're, you're in a tent with each other, you know, it's, it's not just that it's, you know, you're, it's just two of you in a, in a small home, but it's like, you're, you know, you never even have room to turn around. Um, and so, so from that regard, yeah, we've we've always we've always said that it's okay if you know if if Soph wants to take a bus for a week or two and then I'll just ride alone or um, or whatever it is that uh, that we need to do um, to give each other the space that we need. As far as on the you know like being on the bike, I don't know. I think that I just like. I really like being kind of zoned out and, um, and I guess maybe just sort of getting lost in the scenery. I don't, I don't know if that quite makes sense, um, (laughs) to other people, but it's, it's what I do, I guess, you know, I just, I, I think a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of just in awe at the places that I'm riding through. And so, yeah, I think I, I just sort of, I'm just kind of there. Yeah, just trying to <laughs> just trying to take it in and be present, right? And and one of the things that yeah. you know, I've never done a big bike touring trip, but I, you know, I'll bike around here quite a bit, you know, just day things. And I I actually have never biked um with headphones in. I'm not saying you shouldn't, right? Um but I just and again, this is only uh, you know, for a couple hours at a time, I've always just said to myself, I just want to be on the bike and not have anything else other than, you know, my surroundings there. Like, I, I don't want to do it so that I can go listen to podcasts. You know, I'll, I'll do that at the gym or something like that, or if I'm on, like, an elliptical, sure. But for me, it's like, when I get on the bike, I want that to be the time where I am free of other distractions other than what I'm seeing, hearing, smelling. And again, you know, I wouldn't do that if I was going on a two-year trip, probably, because, you know, that's a lot of hearing, seeing, and smelling. Um, but I, I do think that, it does make sense. You're just you're just lost. You're not really thinking of anything. You're just allowing yourself to be there in the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And and you know, you having said that though, I mean, I do um, I do throw the headphones in from time to time. I've actually got a little speaker on the front of my bike too, so I can listen to music without without the headphones. And I'll do things sometimes like um, I knew that we were going to have a big a big chunk of riding. Um, through uh through chile and and I'll, I'll do something like where i'll go and download like every bruce springsteen album and i'm like all right i'm just gonna listen to all of them and see and see what all the talk is about here um and uh you know so I, i'll do like marathon binges of uh of you know somebody's entire catalog um or i i practice spanish along the way too um, audiobooks and, um, 
sometimes sometimes I find myself doing math problems, um, trying to trying to calculate. Um, well, for instance, if you're on a dirt road and um, let's say that you're you're riding through a washboard dirt road for a hundred miles and the washboards are uh, two inches tall and uh, one foot wide, um, then you will ride an extra two miles in washboards and you will also do an extra, I think, I think it's an extra eight, 800 feet in climbing. No, 800, it was eight, no, 2,400 feet in climbing. It was 800 meters. So it was, yeah. So 2,400 feet in climbing, um, which is a lot just from the washboards over a hundred mile section. Um, so so those These are the are those are the things I you think about. Mind. Yeah, like day five hundred fifty. <laughs> that's what you're thinking about, right? And when you right. when you get there. Oh, that's that's yeah. that's hilarious. So <laughs> you talked about some of the, the places that were hard, like you mentioned them, you know, Costa Rica being wet, Peru being wet and cold, obviously the, the desert in northern Chile. What were some of the easier or, or kind of most fun places that you have ridden through? For me, there are a lot of times the hard ones and the fun ones are the same ones. Um, but the, the ones that stand out most in my head, um, the Denali Highway in Alaska, which is actually not in Denali National Park. Um, it starts about 30 miles south of the park, and I think it goes for about 150 miles. And it is every bit as beautiful as Denali National Park without... Um, without any of the kind of, I guess, you know, big national park bureaucracy, you're just really in the middle of nowhere when you're on that road. It's maybe one of, one of the best places to have a realization about how small you are in the world. Um, in the United States, I love, I love the Southwest riding, riding through the Nevada, Utah, Arizona deserts, um, in the winter time in the U S when, uh, it's, it's not very hot. The scenery is absolutely spectacular. Um, and, and it's dry. I, I think we really, really love riding through the deserts because actually like you just, you don't get covered in sweat and, uh, you don't smell as bad. You don't have to worry about always, um, you know, getting, necessarily getting like a a really good shower at the end of the day you can just rinse off with like a bottle of water it's like desert desert riding as long as you can find water is really really easy i think um and so northern mexico um blew my mind um i think like i could go back and and ride circles around northern mexico for like six months um, and actually all of Mexico for that, for that matter. Um, the, the Sierra Madres, um, in Sinaloa are, um, are just unreal, um, incredible, incredible sunsets and sunrises, not a whole lot of people. It's actually kind of notorious as cartel country. So there's not a whole lot of tourism there. And even though you're, you're riding through parts of the country that, 
like in, in the Sierra Madre there, like that's where a lot of people grow like pot and poppy and stuff like that. But they're all kind of just like pretty, pretty quiet and peaceful farmers. So everybody's pretty friendly and they're all really interested in what you're doing there because they don't see too many tourists, um, especially traveling through on a bike. Yeah. Did you have any issues at all of, of traveling through that region? Like as far as safety no. or feeling like, uh, okay, you know, or, or were you just pretty open of like, hey, anyone who's going to see us is going to see us. We're just going down the road. You know, we should be good. Yeah. And so actually that, that was a section that I rode alone from Mazatlan, Mexico, which is along the Sea of Cortez. Um, Sof took a bus um, and we met. I, I think we, we kind of went separate for like two weeks down there and, uh, I rode through Sinaloa and my, my joke about that part of Mexico is that in the United States, uh, everybody says, don't go to Mexico, you're going to die. And then if you get into Mexico they'll all say, don't go to Sinaloa, that place is crazy. And then when you're in Sinaloa, they'll all say, don't go into the Sierra Madres. That's where all the cartels are. So it's like the, it's like the crazy of the crazy of the crazy if you go riding through the Sierra Madre and Sinaloa. The only thing that happened, uh, I would say on the whole trip where I've ever felt kind of nervous or threatened was in Sinaloa early one morning. I was riding up a pretty steep hill through a small town and I did see a guy, uh, I mean like a 20 year old kid in street clothes walking down the street um carrying a massive assault rifle it's one of those things where like i i wasn't really prepared right. <laughs> to see something like that and and then i, I you know I, I see this guy and i do like this double take and i'm like yeah that's that's a guy with an assault rifle and i i looked at him and he looked at me and he kind of had this look like what the heck is that guy doing here? Right. He did a double um, just, take. You did a double take. Yeah. And you're like, I wish I hadn't and done I, a double take. I kind of, yeah. Right. And I, it was like really quick. I basically, I, I scanned the area and there's, there's a little girl kicking a ball in the street. There's a woman hanging up laundry and I'm like, nobody in this area seems to care that that guy is there. So I'm just going to do my best not to care that this guy is here and I'm just going to go about my business like everybody else. And, um, and I think he, he was maybe walking with somebody else. And I just, I put my head down, I was going up a hill. So it seemed appropriate that I should start like kind of grunting and like sound like I'm working really hard and too, too hard to notice that he's there or anything like that. And, um, you know, I, I made a few noises. I, I pedaled pretty hard. And I passed the guy up and I don't think, I don't think he gave me a second look. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't give him a second look. And in the end it was, in the end it was absolutely nothing, but it's one of these things that, you know, um, you're, you're not used to seeing something like that in your everyday life. So it was, um, you know, it was one of those things where you just don't, you don't really know what's going to happen because you don't have, you don't have anything yeah, there's no frame of reference. Right. You're like, hey, this is kind of what people were talking about, but well, of why to be worried, but should I be? It doesn't seem like it, except this is, 
yeah, I have no idea what to think here. And then the other thing too is that if you you ask the you ask the locals around there because most of the people that are you know most of the people that live in those areas um, or at least that I met were involved some way in the drug industry, but they were but they were basically just like they were farmers, and so it's like you know I'm going to grow whatever somebody pays me to grow, and if I can get more money for weed than I can for avocados, then, then I'm going to grow weed. And it wasn't, you know, they're not like the, the narcotics, uh, traffickers that you see on TV. They're, they're farmers. And, and I'd talk to those people about it occasionally and they would just say like, yeah, you know, like occasionally you'll see somebody, um, that's like from the actual cartel, but they're like, they're not going to care that you're here. Um, you know, they're, they're just here working, um, and kind of doing their thing. And obviously, you know, that's not to, that's not to minimize what some of those people do and what they're, what they're involved with. But I think that the general, the general impression that I was given was that, um, you know, if they don't have a reason to care about you being there, then they're not going to care. You know, they've probably got more money on them than I've got on me. Um, so, right. Yeah. What was, (laughs) harder than you thought and what was easier than you thought so like when you set if you can remember like when you set out on this journey what did you imagine would be the like what did you imagine would be tough what did you imagine would be the obstacles you had to face and and did that play out like we already said like the financial stuff played out the timing stuff played out you guys were pretty spot on with that stuff but what about the the yeah what you thought all right this is going to be really hard and and maybe it turned out not to be uh, off the top of my head, I'll probably think of something in a second that I maybe thought would be hard, but wasn't hard. But one thing that I that I didn't expect to have happen, and that was much more difficult than I thought, was um, was getting sick as much as I did, and how much that was going to uh, impact six months of the trip. And you know, I got I got sick for the first time in Utah. And then, like I said, I was, I was getting sick every, um, every three or four weeks and it would, sometimes it would like pretty much totally knock me out for a day. And I was very lucky that, um, I, I don't know if, if my body just like, I don't know if it was coincidence or if my body just like was just hanging on as long as it could, but it always seemed to happen that the worst day was when we were going to take a rest day, no matter what. I actually almost, almost never said I can't ride today and we have to rest, but we would get to these points where I would, I would start to get sick and then we would make it to whatever town we were planning to get to. And then my body would just like crash for a day or two. Um, And, and, but then like going, leading into that day and then even going out of that day, sometimes I would be, I would be riding and we would, you know, we'd be doing a, a 50 mile day and every, every 10 or 20 minutes, I would feel like somebody was sticking a knife in my gut, um, because of, you know, just all the, all the issues that I was having with my intestines at the time. Um, so that was that was completely unexpected. Cause I've actually like my whole life, I'm that guy, like I've never been sick. I've never been injured. I've never gone to the doctor. And so for me to have a situation where I'm like, I can't get out of bed today and have that happen once or twice a month 
um, that was that was pretty humbling. Mm. Yeah, and you never plan for it, right? That's not on your itinerary of like, hey, sick days, let's build those into here. Um, and it, and it stinks too to take. I mean, obviously, when you are sick, it's nice to take them, but in your thoughts, you're like, I don't want to take a day off because I'm sick. I want to take a day off to enjoy this or to rest. You know, (laughs) like you're never happy that you're taking off because you're sick, except, you know, except that you are, right? (laughs) Except that you are happy because like, I can't go on. Um, But in the big scheme of things, yeah, it's uh, it's like a waste. It's wasted time in in your head, probably. Um, Even if, even if you need that. What about gear? And we don't have to go through every, uh, all the gear that you guys packed, but I'm interested to think about stuff that you ditched along the way, like things you thought, oh yeah, we need this. And then whether it be a day in the trip or 400 days in the trip that you, you ended up ditching. Four days into the trip, we, we, we ditched a frying pan. Um, (laughs) and we sent four, four days into the trip, like the, the very first post office that we came across, we probably each sent back close to five pounds of gear. And it was like extra clothing, frying pan, like extra charging cords, um, basically anything that we had extra of, um, we sent back. We did a good job. I would say early on that we were probably on the, the low end of like the middle as far as weight goes. Um, most of the people that we come across, they almost always have more gear than us. I would say that maybe if, if we've, if we've passed 30 other cyclists in this whole trip, um, 27 of them have had more than we have. Um, so we haven't really, we haven't really dropped a ton of stuff. I'd say that we, we kind of like tweak and change things along the way. Um, like we just, changed like our our front racks and got like some lighter bags and just actually kind of got rid of some of our bags and just started strapping stuff directly to the bike um rather than like carrying like a rack and a bag to put everything in i i just use old like 20 ounce and one liter pop bottles instead of like actual biking water bottles because um i've got three three or four water bottles on my bike and um like a a nice biking water bottle weighs weighs about four or five ounces and uh a 20 ounce of coca-cola weighs one ounce so if you carry three or four bottles (laughs) you actually save close to a pound um just in using a cheap plastic bottle and you know and if the thing gets completely um you know like trashed at some point you know they're um you know, yeah, you can you, find them anywhere. You can buy it. You can buy a new one for a dollar, and it's and it's already filled with liquid, as opposed to a uh, a brand new water water bottle like for cycling is like twelve dollars. So nice, um, interesting. Yeah, but, the, the things you yeah. think about when you're on the road for that long, right? You just sit there like this right. is a pound of water bottle, like just water bottle that yeah. I that I'm bugging uh-huh. on, on that. What are some of the, like, what are pieces of gear? Because that's a really interesting point of, you would think, Hey, I need like an awesome water bottle. And no, you don't, right. You, you it's actually going to be heavier. What it, would you say are pieces of gear that you are, are complete necessities? Like these things have been lifesavers. Maybe they've held up way better than you thought, you know, or they're like, yeah, yeah what are those of the things that you've had? Um, I mean, a, a good, 
but actually super small. You don't need you don't need something fancy. I see a lot of people carrying like a big fat Leatherman with like a hundred tools on it, and and the thing probably weighs close to ten ounces. Um, I actually have it's called um, the the Gerber Dime. And it is like a, it is a super small pocket knife. It's like the size of your thumb. And to me, the most important thing to have on the pocket knife is the uh, needle nose pliers. Um, Because just a pair of needle nose pliers is usually like pretty big and bulky and heavy, but to have like a good, a good set of needle nose pliers that I can like yank on a cable to tighten it on the bike or, or something like that. Um, is super, super important for me. Um, but so like the, the best, the smallest multi-tool you can find with a useful pet pair of needle nose pliers is awesome for, as far as tools go. Um, tape, <laughs> um, okay. like I, you know, uh, I take, a you know, like, like, a duct tape and just wrap it around itself until I've got a roll of duct tape, like the, the width of a pencil, um, will save you in so many jams and same thing with like a little bit of electrical tape and paracord (laughs) actually, uh, three or four weeks ago in the middle of the Chilean desert, I broke a spoke and, um, like at some point in the day, I noticed my, my wheel started rubbing against my front derailleur. And I, and at the end of the day, I like, I went to like, take a look at it and I noticed I had a broken spoke. So my wheel wasn't straight anymore. And, um, the next day we, we actually like, we passed through one of these little towns of 200 people in the middle of the desert. Of course, you know, there's no, no bike shop or bike parts anywhere in the town. And I, I managed to, um, I had a bunch of paracord that we used to hang a tarp with the tent. And, um, so I, I took that paracord and it's, um, I think, oh, it's tensile strength is like 200, 200 pounds of force or something like that. I basically rigged up like a rope and pulley or like a block and tackle system with like one, with like a couple, um, loops of cord coming out of the wheel and then another one coming out of the hub. And then I, was able to, you know, string the cord through those loops multiple times, like a rope and pulley. And then that allowed me to pull and, you know, multiply the force to the point that I could pull the rope tight enough to, uh, get about the same tension as a spoke and straighten my wheel back out. Bike touring is definitely one of those things where, uh, less is more. And the more, the more resourceful you are, as a, as a person, as far as, you know, just little things like that, knowing, you know, knowing how to make a bunch of different types of knots so that you can build a mechanical system that you need, um, to solve a problem is really great. What would you say for someone like myself who is like, man, I'm not naturally resourceful or like MacGyver, like this is not my natural inclination, but you want to go bike touring, obviously. I mean, are these just things that you learned as you went? Are there, can they be, can they be learned? Like would, yeah, like what type of preparation should someone do if they're going to be going on something like this? There have been very, very few times for us. And even if, even if you wanted to do like 
essentially the same trip, maybe not the exact same route. Um, but if you wanted to ride your bike from Alaska to Argentina, you could do it on a route where you could be confident that like plenty of cars are going to pass you every day. And so if, if you have a problem, like you can always stick your thumb out and somebody's going to pick you up and drive you to town. Gotcha. Um, so you, so, so there are like, you just chose some more remote paths because, because of things yeah. you wanted to see and things you wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, in, in Alaska, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, people, you tell people that you ride a bike through Alaska and they actually, you know, they have this, um, there's like this romanticized vision of riding through the last frontier and it's just you in the mountains and the bears and in a big empty road. And, and the reality of riding through Alaska in the summertime is that the, um, the Alcan highway is one of the most popular roads for, um, retired RV drivers throughout the summer. So you will, you will get passed by at least a hundred RVs that are like worth half a million dollars every single day. And we, we got to the point in Alaska, we had a water filter. There was like beautiful lakes and rivers to, to filter from, but the water filter can be really, really time consuming. And we got to the point some days there where we were just like, we're just going to pull off at, at a viewpoint because we know there either is or there will be an RV there. And we'll just ask somebody for water because we know they got a 250 gallon tank of water on their RV and they're probably going to give us an apple too. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, as, as far as, as far as resourcefulness goes, it's really good to like, it's great to be able to do all those things, but you don't, you don't have to, I mean, you know, I think we've met, we've met some people along the way that have kind of been like, how do you change a tire? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, all right. So there's all types of people out there doing it again. Not that you're saying don't learn anything, but there's certainly Uh, ways that you can, you can go that are not going to be as remote or. And, and, And the other thing too, that I think we, we take for granted in the U S or maybe don't realize in the U S is that most of the world, at least most of the Americas at this point, um, there's, there's three or four G everywhere. Um, it costs usually if like a two, a two gig data plan in most of the countries, um, South of the U S is like 10 to $15 a month. So we, we buy a SIM card in every single country that we go to. And even in some of some of the some places where you think like there's no way there's going to be service here there's four bars of 4G um and like that that day that I that I made a a block and tackle and fixed my spoke like you know I'm sitting there and I'm like you know how you know rope how do you make a block and tackle out of paracord <laughs> uh, gotcha so <laughs> gotcha um yeah you know I'm yeah. <laughs> a few YouTube videos uh-huh. later and we'll all be MacGyver, right? Is what you're saying. Like, hey, just watch these YouTube Ex- videos. Yeah, you're good to go. Exactly. You break down uh break down in the mi- middle of the Chilean Al- Altiplano and you could probably call an Uber. <laughs> 
There you go. What do you guys have coming up then in the pipeline? Like you're you're you said you're getting ready to finish this trip. It's three or four months, you know, depending how how long you want to take it, because you're in Argentina now, right? So you're gonna go down um the length of Argentina now. What what is next? Are are you gonna continue on the bikes? Are you gonna take time off? Are you gonna go home? You know, is this a one-off or is this a, you know, the start of something that becomes a lifestyle for you? What What are the thoughts? Because it, it's one of those moments that must be pretty cool that you're getting to the end, but also that then begs a question, what's next? Yeah, I don't want it to end, but right, I'd say right now it has to. Um so once, once we get to Ushuaia, um, we'll go back to the States. I think, like I said before, like we've, we've got friends that are watching our pets back there, um, kind of need to rebuild the bank account a little bit, but, um, but I would say I'm all, I'm already thinking about the next one. Um, and, uh, I think I would love, I'd love to come down and keep riding, um, Latin America, uh, there's so, so many things that, um, that I, I would love to see still down here and so many places I'd love to ride. Um, uh, th- there's, there's a part of me that just thinks like when you get to Ushuaia, just get on a plane and fly to the bottom of Africa and then ride up. Um, and, uh, it probably won't happen, but I wouldn't rule it out. Um, but yeah, I think honestly for right now, um, kind of, uh, kind of, kind of excited or ready to actually like go, go back to the States and like settle into one, one place for a little while and, um, not have to, uh, not have to dig a hole to go to the bathroom every night. Um, (laughs) and, uh, so yeah, actually, but, but I, I do see, I do see doing more of this. Um, and I, I think maybe at some point, I'd like to figure out how to, how to make it more of a, maybe more of a lifestyle. Um, but, uh, but for right now, I, I don't think that, I don't think we're in that situation to be able to do that just yet, but I don't think it's a one-off. Yeah, good. Interestingly enough, I had a guy on named Xavier Hima, who has a site called follow the hum of the earth. And he started, um, I guess I think it was like up in Toronto and a similar thing went all the way down or he didn't go all the way down to the bottom of Argentina. He, he was on his way and he decided to not go the whole way. I mean, he made it to Argentina. So very, probably very close to where you are actually right now. And then I was, you know, I was talking to him and he had that trip was over and I was like, what are you doing next? And he said, yeah, I think I'm just going to fly over to Africa and start working my way up. And that's what he's doing right now. So, uh, and when I heard you say that, I was like, wait, I think he's doing the same thing. I just pulled up his site and sure enough, uh, last check-in was in Tanzania. So he started in Cape Town and uh, is just making his way up. So seems to be a, a fairly common thought, right? Like I got to the end of one continent or one, you know, one string of continents. Well, Let me go up the other side. Well, it's it's addictive. I mean, honestly, it's 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 an amazing life. Um, the, the things that we get to see and do every day are pretty spectacular. And even though you do have, it's like anything else, you do have these moments where, you know, um, 
where it, it's it can be hard and difficult and stressful but then um but yeah and it, at the same time when you know you think about the alternative and it's like you know how do i how do i go back to having a a quote unquote normal job or a normal life after something like this and i i kind of feel like i'll always you know if, if i had a um, if I had a desk job, I'll, I would be just sitting there all day long, just daydreaming about being on the road again. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, if you can, if, if you can figure out whatever the path is to, to be able to keep doing something like this, then, um, to me, it seems, it seems perfectly logical that somebody would, would keep bike touring, um, rather than, uh, rather than go back and, and shuffle spreadsheets. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and like you said, once you get a taste of it, you know, I, I, well, I'll ask you this, is it better than you actually even imagined it? Like, is this trip, this life of bike touring better than you thought it would be when you set out? I set pretty high hopes for it, but I think, no, I, I guess I would, I'd say that it's, is kind of what I expected it to be. But, you know, saying that I had, um, I had done a little bit of traveling through Latin America for, um, for a couple months, um, just on foot before. So, you know, I think I, I sort of knew, I sort of knew what I was getting into. Um, but that doesn't make it any, you know, any, any less spectacular. I mean, like I said, I still, I have these moments where like, you know, I just feel like my, uh, like my whole body is tingling when I, when I sit and I'm, you know, on, on top of a, a 15,000 foot mountain and realizing that I'm going to spend the next eight <laughs> hours riding downhill. Um, and like the, you know, the, the feeling that I get on days like that is just inexplicable. Um, and, uh, you know, so yeah, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that it, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, better or worse or anything like that. But I, I kind of had in my head that it, it's going to be, it's going to be the best two years of your life that you've had so far. <laughs> um, and, and it's been that. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, that, and that's perfect, right? Yeah. You knew what you were getting into and yeah. it, you know, sometimes we set super high expectations and it maybe doesn't live up to it. And, you know, it's not going to be the exact same as you thought, but as long as it's living up to those expectations or beating it, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and that being said, I think it has been different than I expected. Um, you know, the, the way that it's been the best two years is, is not, not exactly how, in, how I envisioned it, but, right. but it's been, it's been an amazing ride so far. Awesome. No, and we can leave it at that. No pun intended. It's been an amazing ride. Um, Chris, I want to say thanks so much for joining me today and for showing everyone out there that you can have this crazy idea. You can plan for it. You can go out. You can do it, whether it be bike touring, which if they've listened to this whole thing, probably interested in bike touring to some degree um, or, or anything, you know, anything travel related out there. Um, you can go and do it and, uh, and you can make it work. And you guys certainly have. So that's awesome. Remind people one more time how they can come get a hold of you and follow the rest of your journey. Um, best place to follow us is the places Um, no, no spaces or anything or any, um, characters in between the words. And then, um, and then same thing you can, you can find us under the places IP on Instagram and on Facebook as well. 
Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to link everything up in the show notes, guys. So if you're out there, you're listening, you you know, you miss something or you want to get a link, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. That'll get you um, to this episode and then you can find all the show notes there. And uh, yeah, Chris, thank you again. Uh, super excited to get to chat with you. I'm super excited to follow on Instagram the last couple months of your, of your journey. Uh, live vicariously through you a little bit as you work your way down through Argentina. So I just want to say thanks again for taking some time out of your day, out of your rest day, to come and uh, chat with us. <laughs> uh, the the pleasure is all mine, Travis. Like I said, you got me out of uh, working on my taxes today. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for tuning in today yeah. for your continued support. That makes us number one radio travel podcast. And until next time, everyone, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris soon.